we're going to dive right in today. So if you have a Bible with you, it'll open up to 1 Samuel 19. 1 Samuel 19. This morning we're going to be working through the entire passage. But in this time here, I'm just going to read for us just the first seven verses. And then after I read the first seven verses of the sacred text, then I'll pray, ask for the Lord's blessing on this time, and then we will get to work. Okay, so 1 Samuel 19, starting verse 1. Please hear the word of the Lord. So the Bible says, Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoice. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. Okay, so that's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, it's good for us to be here this morning. And uh, Lord, it's good for us to sit under your word. So God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak through your word. You can speak through me. That we'd use this time to glorify Christ. And to just build us up in the faith. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we, so we know there are certain elements or traits that are to be present in our Christian walk. So, so we know we are to be loving, we are to be kind, uh, we know we are to be a patient people, we are to be long-suffering, you know, among many other similar traits. But this morning as we gather together, there's an element of our trait, of our faith, that is to be present that perhaps we don't think as, about as often as we should, which is the element or the trait of courage. Courage to do the right thing, courage to say the right thing, courage to live out our faith even when it might bring difficulty or challenges with it. Perhaps the most famous scripture that speaks towards the need for courage to be present in our faith comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 1, which just simply says, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. I say all that to you this morning to help set us up for our text of study in 1 Samuel 19, which is another text that details ongoing struggles of sin that King Saul kept falling into as he simply tried to hold on to his kingdom that was taken from, being taken from him. Which, once again, this example of Saul serves as a warning to us. For this morning, where I'm hoping to concentrate our time, not by focusing on Saul's negative example. Rather, this morning, I think this text is actually, actually leading us to a different focus. To focus on Saul's son, Jonathan. Saul's daughter, Michael. And Samuel, the great prophet and priest. Who we'll see in this text of study, each of which showed courage. Where in their courage, they showed great love towards David, who was anointed king by God, doing so at great risk for their own lives. So now before we dig into the chapter 19, quick reminder where we left off in our study. 
So as mentioned, Saul has had a continuous struggle with many different sins. And one of the reason, great reasons behind his sin and all the different sins he was having is this consuming desire to keep his power as the king. And this consuming desire uh, he had, even though the Lord told him a couple different times that the king would actually be taken from him and given to a man after God's own heart, David. And at first, I don't think Saul quite understood the king after God's own heart who uh, was going to be given the kingdom would be David. However, as our text last uh, few times, it seems like Saul is starting to put things together, put things in place. We're starting to get more and more clear that David was this promised king that God was going to put over Israel, the one who would take Saul's place. And as Saul began to piece all this together, he came to the conclusion that the only way that he could keep his kingdom was by killing David. Even though David was Saul's most trusted servant, who accomplished some great military victories on his behalf. Our text today is just another attempt by Saul to take the life of David. However, in our text today, as Saul was once again trying to take David's life, as I mentioned, we see Jonathan, Michael, Samuel show great courage. Great courage in ways that they sought to protect David and his life. As I mentioned, putting their own life at risk. Okay, so that's a little bit of a refresher where we left off. Look back with me in our text starting in verse 1. If you have a Bible open, keep them open. I'm just going to walk us through the passage. As you look back at verse 1, just let me know that this, uh, this sermon will be broken up into three different scenes, which I think captures um, which is in our text. So scene 1 from our text today will be verses 1 through 7, where we see the courage of Jonathan. Scene 2 will be verses 8 through 17, which details the courage of Michael. And then finally, scene 3, which is starting in verse 18 to the end of chapter 19, where we see the courage of Samuel. Okay, so scene 1, starting in verse 1, where we see that Saul is having a conversation with his son Jonathan and all of Saul's servants. And in that conversation, we see Saul give them instruction, which was to kill David. And I think this here just kind of just shows us how far sins, uh, Saul's sinful quest for control continued to spiral for him. How much the root of bitterness that he had towards David continued to grow and multiply. So it's at first, Saul was maybe a little more private in his hatred, bitterness towards David, who was a threat to his control. I mean, there was times where he did try to kill David by throwing a spear at him, which no doubt others witness. So he wasn't private in those moments. But there are many other moments in previous passages where Saul was like kind of private in his plans to kill David. Private where he's like scheming, manipulating things around him. Uh, remember how he pretended to like show honor to David with a military role? just so he could put David more easily on the front lines of war, a place where his life would have been at greater risk. Or remember how Saul devised a plan to telling David that he could marry his daughter. In fact, he would love for David to marry his daughter. But first he had to pay just this little old price of a bride price of killing 100 Philistines, which once again would have put David at great risk. Right, those are a little more private, a little bit more hidden, manipulative attempts of Saul seeking to kill David, where perhaps Saul could get what he wanted, but maybe he could kind of save face a bit not look like the bad guy, so he wasn't up front in those private uh, acts of manipulation. But now, over time, in our text here, Saul's not hiding anything anymore. This is all out in the open. Saul wanted David dead, and he very publicly put a hit on his life, telling Jonathan, all the servants, I want you to seek and I want you to kill David. However, Saul was giving his orders, this did not sit well with Jonathan, or it actually reminds us is one who delighted in David. They had like a deep friendship, is something we learned in a previous chapter. So in verse 2, Jonathan did something risky, potentially costly, something courageous. He goes to David to let David know what his father Saul was up to. 
telling David how his father was going to seek to kill him. Further telling David in the text to therefore be on guard and find a safe place to hide. And while you're hiding in safety, David, Jonathan let his friend know in verse 3 of the passage that he would go to his father, stand in the field where he was, and he would talk to his dad about his friend David. Just to hear what Saul might say. And from there in the text, Jonathan promised to return to David to tell what information he learned. So again, this, this act here, this was risky. This is potentially costly for Jonathan. If his father Saul caught wind of what he was doing, who knows how Saul might now turn on him. And after all, we've learned this a few times in our study, Saul had no problem seeking to sacrifice his own kids to keep that which he wanted. You think about it, for Jonathan, what would have been the easy thing to do? The cowardly easy thing to do? Nothing. Right? To hear the order to kill David and just keep it to himself. One verse 4. So with this plan in place, we see that not only did Jonathan meet with his dad to hear the thoughts that his dad had about David, but we see Jonathan actually engage in further acts of courage as Jonathan even speaks up by speaking well about David to Saul, kind of even giving like a Saul a rebuke for how Saul was thinking about David. This itself is a hugely courageous act. I mean, who knows how low self-esteem, loose cannon Saul would respond to Jonathan saying nice things on the very one that Saul had bitter hatred towards. Who knows? Jonathan spoke up to Saul, said to his dad, hey, let not the king sin against his servant David. Dad, don't, don't do that. You know that David did not sin against you. Rather, you know that David actually brought forth good for you with his deeds. Verse 5, after all, Dad, David even put his own life on his line as he went to fight against Goliath in the valley when he struck down the great Philistine. You know how the Lord has been working through David to bring a great salvation that all of us in Israel have now been able to enjoy, including you, Dad. In the text, you, even you saw, you saw this, even you rejoice. So then why is it you're willing to sin against his innocent blood by killing David without cause? So Jonathan put himself out there to stand in the place of his friend David, giving a rebuke to his dad. Verse 9, it actually struck a chord with Saul. To the point that not only did Saul listen to Jonathan, but even agreed. He agreed with Jonathan in such a way that Saul declared that as the Lord lives, David should not be put to death. Very risky action by Jonathan. Incredible, courageous act. An act that if Saul did not receive in the way that he did, it is not a stretch to say this could have been a deadly conversation for Jonathan to have with his dad. Keep going, verse 7. Saul made this decree to spare the life of David. You see, Jonathan called for David to give David the promised report that he had for him, which my guess probably was a surprising report for David to hear. For me, if I was David, I would have been sure that this would be a very bad report. However, in the text, as David heard this good report, he learned that not only did Saul take the bounty off his head, but he also put it out there that no one was to touch David. As David received this report, clearly he trusted what Jonathan told him, to read that David agreed for Jonathan to even bring him now to Saul, to be back in the presence where he was before. Okay, so that ends the first scene. Incredible courage by Jonathan, where God used Jonathan to spare the life of David, his anointed one. Okay, 
key point, verse 8. We start scenes 2, which is the courage of Michael. So in the passage, see in verse 8, that there was war again in Israel. So now we don't know how much time has passed between scene 1 and scene 2, maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months, maybe longer. We don't know the timeline. We just know that there's war back in Israel. And we see that once again they're fighting against their common foe of 1 Samuel, the Philistines. And as they're at war, David was also back at war. And as David and Israel fought, we see that the Lord continued to be with David to give David favor. So that David, Israel, was able to strike the Philistines in their text with such a great blow that once again the Philistines had to flee, which has been the common outcome of the many ongoing battles between these two parties. However, in the text, even though David once again was used by the Lord to bring forth victory for his people, see in verse 9, this victory did not lead Saul to celebration. Because you see, yet again, a harmful spirit from the Lord came rushing upon Saul. And as Saul sat with the harmful spirit, we see that once again, he also sat with his spear in hand. I mean, this was like his, almost like a security blanket for him. So Saul sat in misery. We see that he calls David over to himself to play for him the liar. In previous chapters, it's the means of grace in Saul's life that drove the harmful spirit away. However, as history often repeats itself, especially with Saul, as David plays the liar, as he's present to try to bless miserable Saul, we see once again Saul's bitterness get the better of him. So in verse 10 of the passage, he took the spear in his hand. He once again hurled the spear at David as Saul tried to pin David to the wall. Only for, yet again, David able to dodge the spear, flee and escape from Saul that night. I don't know how he said this. But this is like history repeating itself. This is Saul once again falling into the same traps, the same pattern of traps. He never learned from past failures, certainly never repented of his past sin. He just kept himself in the same ongoing state of misery, cyclical, cynical misery. Verse 11. See, David fled, and he fled to go back home. And as he went back home, somehow Saul learned about his whereabouts. So in the passage, we see Saul put forth an order to his messengers, which I'm assuming were some type of like trained military warriors. And they were to go to David's house to get there by morning so they could kill David without any more delay. However, in our text, as Saul sought to kill David, Saul's daughter, Michael, who in chapter 18 is also David's wife, so she knew of Saul's intentions, what intentions he had for David. So maybe she heard Saul speak to the messenger. Perhaps she just knew her dad and how he was. However she knew what was going to take place, we see her now move in courage. And in courage, she sits down her husband David uh, that night for a talk. That she could tell him what was going to happen from here. So Michael to David, David, listen to me. I know my dad. I know his intentions. If tonight you do not escape your life, if you don't get out of here, come morning, I am telling you, my dad, he is going to kill you. He is raging mad right now. He is not going to stop until you're dead. Dave, listen, we've got well past the point of like trying to rationalize with him, which is what Jonathan actually was able to do in, verse, or in scene one. So here, scene two, rationalizing with Saul, this is not an option. They're not going to be able to like talk him through to kind of cool Saul down. Michael tells David his only option was to flee for his life. So in verse 12, courageously, Michael helped David escape through the window so he could flee to safety, away from the man Saul instructed to kill him. 
As David fled from, for safety, Michael understood that she was actually going to need to give her husband some uh, extra time so he can get away. So in a further act of courage, in verse 13, you see Michael comes up with a plan, a plan to buy time for David. Now, she could have just told David what Saul was going to do and leave it at that. She could have maybe just like helped him out the window and said, you know what, that's enough. But here, she's going like above and beyond. She does an even greater act of courage that would put her at even greater risk. As Michael went above and beyond, we see her plan to buy time for David was actually the original uh, Ferris Bueller move. Remember that movie, Ferris Bueller from the 80s? It's this movie in the 80s where a teen kind of devised a plan to like skip school for the day. And this plan involved him like putting a mannequin in his bed to try to take his, trick his parents that he was like homesick. So that, that's basically what Michael does here in the text. So we see that she took an image that was in the shape of a man. Uh, she laid that image in bed. Then she took a pillow, and her text tells us she got like some goat hair flowing from it, gave him the appearance of a human head. And then to top it off, she covered the image with clothes. So in the morning, when the messengers of Saul came for David, they would look in the bed, see the image, of, uh, and assume that it was David, right? much like Ferris Bueller. Also like Ferris Bueller, Michael would then tell uh, the messenger that David was sick. He's unable to get out of bed. Now, we don't know the layout of the house is like, but you just kind of get the sense. But as Michael met the messengers at the door, like they were able to like maybe somehow look past her to get a glance and see the image in the bed. Between seeing the image in the bed and Michael's story of sickness, like this plan worked. The messengers bought into the story. And as they bought the story, which bought David more time, it seemed like the messengers didn't know what to do from there. So in verse 15, so once again, had to send messengers to insist that they see David. So basically with one voice, they told Michael, hey, I don't care if he's sick. Get him up. Bring him out of the bed so that I may kill him. Which, by the way, does prove that Michael is correct. Nothing was going to stop Saul. Verse 16, eventually Michael could stall them no more. No more time to buy. The messengers were not going to wait any longer, so they pushed her off the side and headed straight to the bed. But in the text, as they got closer to the bed, they could see there's a problem. Because they could see what actually was in the bed. It was not sick David. They could see what actually was in the bed was just the image. They could see they were duped. As being obvious to them what had happened, how Michael bought time for David to flee to safety, Saul then speaks up to his daughter in disbelief, and I sure am sure in anger in verse 17. Michael, why have you deceived me? Why would you let my enemy go? How could you let him escape? To which Michael responds back in the text to Saul, a little bit more deception, telling Saul, well, uh, he said to me, if I had not let him go, he would kill me. Which is hard to know exactly what this conversation looked like, but at least to me, I kind of wondered, as Michael said this, she did so maybe with a slight grin, with Saul fully knowing that that actually wasn't true, fully knowing that his daughter helped his great enemy escape. Which ends scene two. Courageous Michael, who aided and embedded David, who although was innocent, was declared guilty in Saul's court, who not only helped David escape, but then put together this entire plan to further buy him time. That is a courageous scene. Keep going. Starting verse 18, which starts the third scene in the passage, where we see that David fled and escaped, and he went to his old friend Samuel. As mentioned at the start, this is the great prophet and priest who is in Ramah. 
which is where Samuel actually was after he anointed David to be king in chapter 16. This is actually the last time we've seen him in this text. And in verse 18, as David got to Samuel, they did what you think they would do. They spent a little bit of time catching up. And as they caught back up with each other, David told Samuel everything that Saul had done to him and the many times that Saul tried to kill him. And as Samuel heard the report, he has compassion on David, the Lord's anointed king. So an act of courage. Samuel invited David to stay with him and live with him at Naoth, which perhaps is a town or perhaps maybe even like more like a shepherding camp. In short, Samuel agrees to harbor a fugitive. Which in our small group this week, we talked about like Corey Tinboom, and his family took in Jews who were being hunted by Nazis. Remember that story? If you don't know that, you need to read it. Look it up, Corey Tinboom. We also talked about like, the Underground Railroad who took in runaway slaves. Like, and how risky those actions were, those courageous actions. Similar here with uh, Samuel. This is risky. This is an act of incredible courage. Not simply to talk with David, but also allow David to stay with him. As David and Samuel lived together, we see in the passage that they didn't remain fully hidden from Saul because in verse 19, someone told Saul of their locations at Neoth and Ramah. And as Saul learned of David's whereabouts, like, what do you think he did? Yeah, clearly. Once again, he sends out messengers to seek and destroy David. But when the messengers arrived on the scene, we read that they were met with a company of prophets who were prophesying with Samuel present as the one head over them all, which is a further act of courage. And think about this, right? Samuel could have easily said, okay, sorry, David, the gig is up. They found us. Uh, you better get out of here while you still can. He didn't do that. What Samuel and the other prophets did, they courageously stood in the gap between David and those seeking to kill him. And they prophesied. Now, it is hard to know exactly what this looked like. Perhaps as they stood in the gap there, maybe like they were preaching, maybe even like maybe praying out loud. So whatever the prophesying was, the Lord was clearly at work in it in this text. You see the Spirit of God come rushing onto the scene. And the Spirit of God came upon actually the messengers of Saul to not only keep them from harming David, but amazingly, our text tells us that the Spirit fell on the messengers in such a way that they too now started to prophesy in ways where the messengers seemingly were like convicted and maybe moved into agreement with Samuel and what the other prophets were saying. Verse 21, as a report of what happened, what was happening, gets back to Saul. Right? This was enough to like, was not enough to like convict Saul that maybe he should like relent from the desire to kill David, or maybe even like slow him down to ponder and reevaluate his decisions. To see in the text that Saul simply just sends out more messengers to capture David, to get the job done. But amazingly, at the end of verse 21, the same thing happens. Samuel, prophets, in courage, still in front, prophesying, which is used by the Lord to send the Spirit of God to come upon these messengers as well, where they too start to prophesy as God continues to protect his anointed one. And even this second time of this act happening, this still is not enough for Saul to relent. So in the passage, we see a third time Saul sends messengers. And the third time, the Lord not only protected his anointed David, but a third time he convicts and he moves the messengers. So the third group starts to prophesy. I mean, th this had to be an amazing sight to see. So even though it's kind of hard to know all what this looked like, I think this is kind of easy for us in some levels to picture. 
I mean, you, you see my mind. Like David, surrounded by Samuel and the other prophets who were prophesying, standing guard in front while the messengers came. And through their acts of courage, through their words of courage, as they're prophesying, right, these words of courage going out, and they land in the ear of each messenger. And God worked in such a way, he stops the messengers in his tracks. In ways that even they start to agree and join in what the prophets are saying. Like, incredible scene. Keep going, verse 22. Saul gets his latest report. The latest group of messengers. It's still not enough for Saul to relent. His heart is still rock hard. So he decides, like, you know, he himself is going to have to go to see what's happening. So then he himself could kill David once and for all. So verse 22, we see that he went to Ramah, came to a great well at, at Seku, which is presumably somewhere in the general area where he knew Samuel and David and the prophets were located. In the passage, as Saul arrives on the scene, he starts to act, uh, ask around to the locals to see if they knew where Samuel and David were located. And as he asks around, one in our text responds back to Saul to tell him exactly where they were located. So in verse 23, Saul himself goes to find out where they were. And amazingly, as Saul arrives on the scene, the same thing happens to Saul. The Spirit of God rushes on Saul, and he too starts to prophesy. He too begins to agree with what, the Sam, what Samuel and the other prophets are saying. Finally, our text ends with Saul stripping off his clothes as he lays naked night and day, prophesying before Samuel. Which this action here, I think, has a, a double meaning, perhaps even a third meaning. The first meaning, probably the most clear meaning, as Saul was taking off his clothes, this was an absolute humility to Saul. This act here, this would have been a shocking embarrassment, a shocking disgrace for a respected king to take part in. Like lying naked on the floor in front of everyone. Second meaning, it's probably more of a symbolic meaning. It appears that this action of Saul's clothes being stripped from him was symbolic of the Lord stripping the kingdom from Saul. But perhaps a third meaning, maybe it's almost like a callback to 1 Samuel 5. Remember when the statue of the false god Dagon toppled over and was laying prostrate before the ark of God? It kind of feels like maybe the same thing here. So here's like the false king Saul toppled over laying prostrate before the great prophet and priest of God. As the scene finishes up, our text ends saying that once again, the people started to ask among them, is Saul among the prophets? Which is a phrase actually already came across in chapter 10 at the start of Saul's reign. However, in chapter 10, as this phrase is being said among the people, is maybe more in a positive light. Like there's some positive traits of Saul in chapter 10 that he seemed to be growing in. So the people started to wonder, like, okay, who is this guy again? But now here in our text, as it ends, this phrase here, is Saul among the prophets, this actually seems to be more like on the negative, where people are confused of what is happening to their once proud king, Saul, who's now laying naked on the ground. Okay, now for the rest of our time here from this text, I just want to flesh out a few more things when it comes to courage. Which is saying, this is a trait that, that really must be present in our faith. Friends, listen, we are to be courageous followers of God. He's not calling us to be cowards. He's calling us to be courageous. So I want to work through this is first by just giving a few traits of courage that we see in the text. And then I want to give, maybe give press on us a little bit, maybe some avenues for us to be courageous like in our, our context here today. And lastly, I just want to speak to you like just as pastorally as I can as relates to this growing challenges that you and I might face if we're going to be courageous in the society that we currently live in. 
So first, system character traits. Could say a lot more about this, could be a handful. So first, as you and I, as we seek to be courage, just know, first, or understand, courage often comes at the expense of comfort. Right? Now, we all want to be comforted or comfortable. However, at times, in the act of faith, to do the right thing, to be courageous, we have to be willing to sacrifice comfort. And I do think this is often where the dividing line comes to when we act in courage or maybe when we act as cowards. It's whether or not we're willing to sacrifice comfort. In the text, each scene, each character, they could have stayed in comfort and did nothing. That would have been the easy thing to do, to do nothing or, or maybe barely something. What did we just walk through? They didn't do that. They sacrificed comfort in order to act in courage. In fact, they were so courageous, they're even willing to risk losing everything that comes by upsetting Saul. Friends, if you and I are going to be people of courage at times when the situation calls for it, we have to be willing to give up comfort. We have to give up comfort to do the right thing over the easy thing. By the way, kind of tied to this, a couple things we talked about in our small group this week as it relates to the willingness to sacrifice comfort is that courage, it really does have a component of counting the cost. Where we count the cost of leaving comfort to act in courage, that was certainly true of the characters in the text. They, they would have known the cost for courageously protecting David. They knew the cost of the comfort they were giving up in order to save David's life. This week, we also talked about this reality as they counted the cost. I think it's pretty likely on the scene that they all were nervous. I mean, I guess maybe not Samuel, he seemed kind of hardcore, but the rest of them, I'm, I'm sure they were nervous. Maybe even scared to move in courage. Counting the cost to act in courage doesn't mean that we're not going to feel nervous, or it might not be hard, or we might be, not be scared. Those things could very well present, but it just means in the end, our desire to be courageous, to do the right thing, just simply wins out. Second, courage seeks the good of others. Which is why being courageous is different than being obnoxious. Right? You know, we can be bold. We can take bold stands. We can really throw ourselves out there. But at the end, if it's just like a self-righteousness, if it's just like pride, if it's self-serving rather than serving others, that's just being obnoxious. That's fake courage. Courage often is standing up to do the right thing, giving up personal comfort for the good of others. That's what we see in each character in this scene. For the glory of God, for the good of David, God's anointed king. They moved in courage to protect David in his life. That's, that's courage. These acts were not to benefit them, but another. Friends, courage is selfless, not selfish. Third, Courage often brings forth more courage. So in our study of 1 Samuel, one of the things that we contended to circle around uh, many times is just a snowball effect of Saul's sin. They call sin in his heart, produce more sin in his heart, produce more sin in his heart. Right? All these sinful negative behaviors just brought forth more sinful negative behaviors. But I do think the same principle actually can happen on the positive as well, where an act of courage can build off itself in ways that it snowballs into more and more acts of courage 
Now, I don't want to press this too far from the text, but that is what we actually see with each character as they act in courage. They followed up with more courage, which is actually an even greater act of courage than the previous ones. So Jonathan Hick, he's courage. He has some courage here to tell David of, uh, of his dad's intention, which led to him to be even more courageous, even advocating for David to Saul. Michael, she certainly was courageous to also tell David of her dad's intentions, which led to more courage to help David escape through the window, which led to even greater courage by helping David buy some extra time. Samuel, he was courageous to let David stay with him, which led to even greater courage to stand in the gap multiple times between David and the messengers. And if you're here this morning and you're hoping to grow in courage, as opportunity comes, take a step, a step of faith, and be courageous. Trust that that one act of courage can be used by God in your life in ways to snowball into greater acts of courage. So that's the last thing I want to mention here in this section. So God, or courage is used by God for the sake of his anointed. Right, so courage, it really is a means by which our God accomplishes his will. Which really, in the end of the story, in each scene of the story, that's ultimately what it's pointing us to, to the work of God. How God used the courage of his people to stand in the gap and protect his anointed David. Friends, God uses courage, the courage of his people in great ways. In fact, even the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that message is dripping in courage. Where the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became flesh to be God's true anointed one, the true Christ, filled with all courage. In fact, Jesus was filled with such perfect courage that he was the one who counted the cost and laid down his life for the sake of his people, which he did on the cross. So that on the cross, rather than people like standing in the gap of God's anointed one, which was 1 Samuel 19, on the cross, the anointed one, Jesus, he stands in the gap for his people. This is on the, on the cross. The Lord Jesus, he bears the wrath of God by taking the punishment of all of our sins in our place as our substitute, including all of our sins where we have acted as cowards rather than encouraged. Friends, on the cross, there's never been a greater act of courage. Friends, because Jesus Christ rose again from the dead on the third day, not only do we have full confidence that indeed all of our sins have been forgiven, not only do we have confidence that God does use courage through the courage of Christ, but how do we seen? We also have confidence, the theme of this sermon, because Jesus Christ rose again. We have confidence that you and I, we can be courageous. We know that our anointed one, he lives. Our anointed Jesus, he's the one who's victorious. We can be courageous. And we can trust that any acts of courage that you and I might walk in by faith, all acts of courage that we do for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, these acts of courage are used by God. They're not in vain. God will use them to bring glory to Christ and build his kingdom that will have no end which leads to the second part of how I want to close our time here. Just some few thoughts for you and I and how we might walk in courage in our context. Once again, I can say a lot here, but let me just toss out a few thoughts. So I think perhaps the most obvious act of courage that you and I are to walk in is by sharing our faith, sharing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ with the world around us, starting with those who God has already placed in our lives who have not yet trusted in Jesus. 
to be courageous with our family and our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers, which no doubt is not an easy thing for most of us to do. That could be terrifying. We, we know the more comfortable thing to do, nothing, is to cower in silence. But friends, if we're going to be courageous, we must tell people about Jesus. We can't hide. We must courageously speak up and speak the good news that Jesus Christ died and rose again. But that's not the only place where you and I should show courage. For some here, perhaps it's actually courage for you is maybe getting a little bit more involved in church life. You're maybe pressing in, using your gifts, serving the church as a whole. And for some, listen, I know this could be terrifying, especially if you've been burned in the past by churches or maybe you just feel a little insecure. Maybe that's an act of courage that you need to take. For others, an act of courage might lead you to become very open and vulnerable with your small group or maybe a trusted friend to confess a sin that maybe you've been harboring in your heart for too long that it's now destroying you from the inside out. For others, an act of courage might lead you to stand up for the vulnerable, maybe those who are still in the womb, or maybe a child who's facing some type of abuse or neglect. Maybe you get involved in something like foster care. For others, an act of courage might lead you to have to give up something you've been holding on really tightly that's become an idol to you. Just something we see many times, Saul, that you didn't have the courage to let go. For others, an act of courage might lead you to take a stand to do what's right, whether it be at work or maybe even in the college classroom. For some of the others, perhaps an act of courage might actually lead you to the foreign mission field where you serve God in a dark, lonely, maybe even dangerous place. I could say a lot more here. But friends, let's not waste this text today and the examples of our text and do nothing with them. Rather, let's just trust the Lord that whatever opportunity he has placed before you, us to act in courage, that, that he'll be faithful. And let's tell our hearts to be faithful as well. Which is actually leads to the last thing I want to close the sermon with. And this is why I want to try to be as pastoral as I can. And I want to do that by simply acknowledging that we live in a world where society is becoming more and more hostile to the truth of God's word. Where society becomes more and more seemingly demanding that we submit to all the different ideals that the world itself is promoting even though they go against the clear teaching of Scripture. And I acknowledge this by fully acknowledging that for some here, this is so difficult, either at work or in your classroom, that there might be some great cost or courage that might be before you. Okay, so with that being said, let me just kind of end this time with a quick story. And this story here takes us to Romania in the, the late 1940s, as communism is like taking over uh, that country. Among the many things that communists want to control is what's taking place in churches. So Romania, what they did, they gathered together all the pastors in the area to tell them what they could and they could not do from that point going forward, which severely cut against the teachings of Scripture and the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the point that they're basically insisting that they teach a different religion. So as the communist leaders were laying this out in front of the pastors, so in the crowd there's a young pastor named Richard, and his young wife, Sabrina. And as this meeting went on, Sabrina's like, she's not having it. So she goes over to her husband, Richard, to tell him, Richard, I want you to go up there, go up on stage, and I want you to wipe the shame off of Jesus' face. 
to, and let them know, hey, we're not going to compromise. To which Richard responds back to his wife, Sabrina, do you know what this means? Do you know the cost that we're going to have to pay if I do this? This would mean you would no longer have a husband because certainly I will be arrested by the governmental powers. To which Sabrina responds back, I don't need a coward for a husband. So Richard counts the cost. An act of great courage goes forward to wipe the shame off of Jesus' face by taking this courageous stand, which indeed did lead to his arrest. So for the next 13 years, he was in prison. And while he's in prison, like further acts of courage are bubbling out of Richard. And God ends up using Richard not only to preach the gospel of Christ to fellow prisoners, but even to the prison guards, who at times severely beat Richard for doing so. However, for the 13 years in prison, God worked through these incredible acts of courage, these ongoing acts of courage, that he actually brought many to faith in Jesus Christ, including the guards who at one time were beating him. And in time, after Richard was released from prison, God used Richard and his wife, Sabrina, to start a ministry. Some of you probably have heard of it, Voice of the Martyrs, which has been continued to be used by God in ways to advocate for Christians all around the world who continue to take courageous stands for Christ, many of which are paying the ultimate cost of death for doing so. Dear friends, I'll say it again. I know right now some of you already are in some difficult crossroads. Crossroads that perhaps will only get more intense with time. Where perhaps you might have to pay more and more of the cost to take a stand for Jesus Christ. So if I can humbly encourage you, when you're at the crossroads, remember Jesus promised us that he'll never leave you, never forsake you. Remember that the steadfast love of God is worth any and all costs that we might pay. And remember the words what Jesus tells us. So I said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Lord, please forgive us for when we are cowards, when we are ashamed of the gospel. God, I do pray that you'd help Red Village Church to be a church that has a humble yet strong backbone for the cause of Christ. Lord, I pray that you use our little flock here to do a great work. Lord, please help us to be bold and courageous witnesses. I pray that our labors would not be in vain but indeed you would use, use us to bring many to saving faith. Lord, I pray for those who are maybe struggling at some type of crossroads or courage this morning, whatever it may be, that you'd help them by faith to trust in you, to trust that you're good, and to continue to move forward in faith, not shrinking back. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.